0: Learn more at marines.com. Welcome to USA Football's Coach and Coordinator Podcast, where top football coaches from around the country share their stories, philosophies, concepts, and strategies to help you get better on and off the field. Now, here's your host, Keith Grabowski. On today's podcast, I share one of my favorite chapters, probably in any of the coaching books that I have, Uh, here on my shelf, and there's hundreds of them, and it's from Bill Walsh's book, Finding the Winning Edge, and the title of the chapter is chapter 13 in his book. The title of the chapter is Strategies and Tactics for Dealing with a Highly Competitive Adversary. And he starts here with a quote, uh, Finding the Winning Edge, the key to success is reaching out, extending yourself, striking, and then if you fall, bouncing back and doing it again, being so resourceful that finally when the moment comes again, you won't hesitate. What makes this situation possible is having a plan that's broad-based enough so any number of situations may be treated as decisive moments. The main thing is to increase your chances, not live or die on one alone. And he wrote that for an article in Forbes. And this chapter really covers all aspects of what it means to be able to go up against a highly competitive adversary. So I'm going to go through some key parts of the book here. He, he goes into some general things. He'll talk about developing an offensive system. That actually goes into a ton of detail, which we won't get into. But we will also talk, talk about the overviews of what he says about defense and special teams as well. I know around the country, we are either in the final stages of preparing for our season to start Uh, We're getting into our practices, maybe in the first days of those practices, or unfortunately in some cases, uh, we've been pushed off maybe till October or even into the spring. Uh, Regardless, there is preparation time left before we face that opponent. So I think a lot of these things are good to go back and take a look at exactly what you're doing as a coach. So it starts here. The accomplishments achieved by any organization are a byproduct of many factors. Perhaps none is more important than the ability of the head coach to set the tone for success. Everyone, coaching staff and players, must be prepared to do their job properly, whatever the situation. This point was clearly reinforced to me by the drive that beat Cincinnati in the 1989 Super Bowl. The drive was the culmination and embodiment of not only 10 years of work with the San Francisco 49ers, but a lifetime of study and refinement. Each player knew his assignment and carried it out. There was no panic, no hesitation. The players knew that they had to prepare for this moment and that they possessed the abilities and the means to finish the job. Unbeknownst to everyone, I knew that this would be my last game with the 49ers. I had decided to retire the week of the Super Bowl and was concerned about the effects of this announcement if it was made before the game. I did not want my decision to become a distraction to the players With the resultant rampant speculation about what this would mean to the players and the organization. I even delayed the announcement for a few days after the game for the players to enjoy the accolades they so richly deserved. I did not want to divert attention away from them with the sideshow that I knew would ensue. Even my decision to retire involved a process that I believed in and to which I had wanted to adhere. I always worked to convince the team that no one was irreplaceable. If a player was injured, or a veteran was replaced, the expectations needed to remain the same, and the structure and the process we had worked so hard to develop would carry us through whatever changes occurred. My whole philosophy of coaching encompassed this, and I wanted to maintain it to the end. I want to pause there and think about this one. We should reflect on, are we set up for exactly as Coach explained it here, that truly everybody is irreplaceable, that you can plug someone into that position. I know we have key players that at the high school level or even in the college level are irreplaceable in a lot of ways. They maybe have different skill sets than other players, but at the end of the day, there's a job that that player does and someone should be able to step into it and do it proficiently. Maybe not as as good as that star, but do it in a way that the execution of the team can continue on. And I know as we face everything here with COVID and and the chance that a player might test positive or with the normal injuries that occur in the season, we want to make sure that our system is set up that way. So I think that's something really good to reflect on and ask yourself questions, even have conversations with your staff. Are you set up in that way that if we have to plug someone into this position, we're good to go? Unfortunately, you know, usually as coaches, we don't face those kinds of things. But have you cross trained your staff? What happens if if your defensive coordinator tests positive and he has to quarantine, who's going to call the plays? I think those are things we've never had to think about, but now those are things that better be in your plans. Continue on with the chapter. With this decision weighing in the back of my mind, the significance of being in the Super Bowl, trailing 16 to 13 with only 310 remaining, sitting first and 10 on the 8-yard line and staring at 92 yards of turf took on an almost surreal quality. This situation would test every fiber of my experience and challenge the very core of a style and structure of play that I had spent a lifetime developing. It took every ounce of concentration I had to maintain my focus and drive out the flood of emotions and any sense of desperation that would divert my attention. The 12-play winning drive consisted of absolute core concepts of our system. We knew we had to execute and had enough confidence not to panic or attempt any heroics. We will count on precision and execution. Only the last scoring play, which was 28 halfback curl X up, was anything close to being out of our normal sequence of our base offense. Even this play was evaluated and conceived after detailed analysis of Cincinnati's defense in this specific situation. At this moment, you realize that coaching is not an exact science. All you can do is be as thorough with your contingency plan as possible play the percentages, and take well-calculated risks, fully cognizant that at some point fate may take a hand. The 12-play sequence of plays seemed to utilize every dimension of our offensive paradigm, the two-minute process, the proper use of timeouts, the audible audible mechanism, the effective communication with the press box, the use of special motion to isolate a receiver, and courage of convictions to stay within the system. The drive reflected what I most love about football, the artistry. People outside the profession sometimes find it hard to think of what we do in terms of orchestration, artistry, and composition because of the brute force that is the game's nature and the finality of competition. Yet, it is this unique confluence of qualities that so captivates me and others who share this profession. I think Coach's drive here really encapsulates not just the single drive of this particular Super Bowl, but the drive of this season. Thinking about everything that we've put into this, the planning that's gone into it. I know you guys have spent a lot of time on Zoom meetings, teaching your systems. You've done your best to connect with your players. And ultimately, this has fit within the unique framework of the system that you have designed that incorporates not just plays, but the people that you have involved and the, and the beliefs that you have and what you have taught everybody to do in terms of their behaviors. All the outcomes that you want are right in front of you right now in terms of this season, but there's going to be a lot of challenges. This may be the most challenging season of your career. And just as coach said, this is not an exact science, but you have to start planning for those contingencies as I talked about before. Next coach goes into his offensive system. Over the years, organizations have devoted considerable time and expended substantial resources in search for the absolute formula for success in the NFL. Obviously, no single best formula exists. If it did, every team would adopt it. On the other hand, success in the NFL involves numerous common denominators. Perhaps none is more important than a comprehensive plan that addresses every on-the-field and off-the-field factor that could reasonably be expected to have an impact directly or indirectly on the performance of the team. At the core of such plan are offensive and defensive schemes that have been designed to enable the team's players to best utilize their skills and abilities. Developing an offensive system. If a team knows week in and week out that it will outman its opponent, offensive strategy and tactics are not a high priority. Unlike the collegiate level where Nebraska, Notre Dame, Florida, USC, etc., have had this advantage for years. Such a set of circumstances does not exist in the NFL. As a result, the need to establish an effective offensive system is critical. And it's funny, you know, of those teams he mentioned, maybe one of them is in the top 10 right now. Uh, They're teams that you see even at the college level need that system. Opinions regarding what conditions are necessary, components of an effective offensive system, tend to vary from organization to organization. Some coaches, for example, believe the number one priority for having a successful offense is to establish the running game. In reality, however, the logic behind such an approach is somewhat faulty. What a team actually needs is a fully dimensional offensive system that provides it with the latitude to access whatever aspect of the offense it needs whenever it needs it. A fully dimensional approach to offense features a balanced offense that accounts for all reasonable contingencies that can occur during the game. It provides a mechanism to address each contingency or situation as it develops. Rather than compel a team to depend on a single dimension of offensive strategy, a fully dimensional system gives a team multiple offensive weapons. Having several options available can be particularly valuable to a team when a specific aspect of its offensive game plan is nullified by circumstances. For example, playing conditions, the caliber of the competition, injury to key players, or in our case, maybe sickness. In other words, if one dimension of the team's offensive arsenal is shut down, a fully dimensional offensive system gives a team the opportunity to succeed within the existing circumstances. A fully dimensional offense has several characteristics. At a minimum, it must be functional. It must be interactive. It must be feature descriptive verbiage that facilitates communication between the coaching staff and players. It must be flexible. And to a degree, it must be innovative. I'm going to pause there and think about that. Consider that right now, your approach to the season might be very different. Where at times we face the adversity of maybe losing a key player in a unit of, let's say, our four receivers we have, maybe we plan for what do we do if this guy goes down, this guy can go in here, or we can move this guy over, and this guy will come in, and you find a way to get the best available remaining talent on the field. What do you do if that position group is essentially wiped out? What are you going to do this particular season? Have you prepared for that? Do you have the ability to get an extra lineman in the game as a blocker to create a gap and maybe run the ball within the schemes that you have available. I know we typically don't think about those things in terms of what may happen, but they do come up. I can think of an instance in last year's playoffs here uh, in Northeast Ohio, where one of the teams uh, in that particular playoff game was out of quarterbacks. And they built the game plan, actually, and looking at it around their offensive line, which is their strength, ran the football, made few mistakes, And ended up winning the game they had a plan to do what they were doing within their system and fit to what they had left and i think that's what we need to think about here things again that are out of our normal train of thought might have to become part of our thinking right now we get back to it here a team's offensive structure must be designed in such a way that it has a logical progression to it that both the coaching staff and the players understand not only must it be fundamentally sound conceptually, it must also be based to a degree on a detailed analysis of the responsibilities of each player and on a prioritized sense of appreciation regarding what skills are needed to play each position effectively. i pause there a minute again and think about the skill sets. What are you doing to develop some of those things that maybe you might have to plug a player into a certain spot? How are you developing for that contingency? continue on. The running game and the passing game should complement each other. The basic formations and motions employed in a team's offensive scheme must be equally functional in both phases of the game. It is also important that a team's offensive system utilizes user-friendly language. A team's players and coaches must be able to communicate with each other quickly and effectively in pressure situations during the game. Properly defined language is critical in a number of ways. For example, verbiage that is clear, concise, and easily understandable can enhance a player's ability to grasp and assimilate the team's offensive systems. In turn, this factor facilitates the transition of players, new and veteran, into the team's offensive structure. Similar to the system itself, the verbiage used to install, employ, and manage the offensive system must be functional, concise, and relevant. I I know we're down to the last minute, some of you, before you head out there, but I would ensure that the way you're teaching things does have that streamlined effect that it is very efficient and effective in communicating what you want because again you may have to cross train somebody to handle a different assignment you might have to cross train somebody in some different techniques Because walsh continues a team's offensive structure must also have enough flexibility to be able to readily assimilate new players Given the advent of free agency in the NFL in the 1990s, organizations must design their offensive systems in such a way that systems can be adjusted or changed as necessary, depending on the skills and abilities of the players on the team at a particular point in time. In reality, some coaches are either unwilling or unable to recognize the fact that their team's offensive approach must be altered if the level of talent on their team is insufficient to to meet the demands of their style or philosophy. Such a situation makes the already difficult decision whether to abandon a potentially productive part of the offense even more difficult. A coach will make a serious error in judgment if he tries to force a particular play sequence on a team that has only a minimal chance of performing it effectively, and then blames its lack of success simply on the inadequacies of his players. Every coach must remember that a system should never reduce the game to a point where the players are blamed for the failure of the system because they did not physically overwhelm the opponent. Very important point there. I think it's it's very clear that we have to make sure the burden is on the system not the players. Finally a team must be open to change. Given the dynamic state of the NFL in the 90s, example, players are bigger, faster, stronger, defensive schemes continue to evolve, etc. A team must have an offensive system that is sufficiently innovative To keep abreast of the changing circumstances. Even if a particular element of the offense has been successful in the past, no guarantee exists that it will work in the future. One area of the offensive structure that has undergone considerable change in recent years has been the teaching progression that teams use to group and teach the skills involved in a particular offensive scheme or technique. For example, technological advances such as the Telecaster and Digital Video have provided coaches with cutting-edge tools to enhance both teaching and sequential learning. I can remember back to coaching in a small school situation where we did take that approach. Uh, this is a book I've, I've studied time and time again that uh, we weren't naive to say that we were light at a certain position, and if we lost a guy here or there, we had to have somebody ready or cross-trained from another position, or we might have to have Uh, a different set of plays to attack it. Now, we wanted to keep those within the play sets that we normally had, within the schemes that we normally had. We didn't want new learning. We just wanted new application of those schemes to potentially a different group of players. So we would install small packages for those situations in camp, hoping we didn't have to rely on them, but at least having some confidence that if we did, if we got to a particular week, we had a base to which we could start with, maybe we would have to expand on that a little bit during the course of the week, but we could go at any point in the game, put a Band-Aid on things, and then continue on to the into the next week. Coach Walsh has another 20 pages that go on into every single detail of all those things that he believes need to be a part of an offensive system. We're going to skip ahead to those overview beliefs of a defensive system. So he starts, similar to its offensive system, a team should have a fully dimensional defensive system that is both functional and flexible. A functional, flexible, and innovative design provides the base for a championship defense. By its nature, sound defensive football is contingency-based. The contingency factor, factor which most often drives the defense is the field situation. For example, down in distance, field position, etc. Defenses must also account for circumstances which are time-related, two minutes to go at the end of half, etc., Finally, the defensive system must be ready to respond to the reactive elements of the game, first down after an explosive play, first down after a turnover, etc. Of the three elements which a defensive system must be able to address, the reactive situations are the most intense. Offenses usually are structured to maximize the yardage gaining potential of a reactive situation. One of the characteristics of a sound defense is the fact that all defenders are fully aware Of the need for sharpening their focus in reactive situations as the head coach you must consider certain factors when designing developing and implementing your team's defensive system among the steps that you can take to help ensure that your team has a sound defensive system are the following design a defensive system that is built around the players as a rule the head coach should not fall into the trap of holding to a purist philosophy or system find a system which fits the talent of your players Players cannot adjust their talent level to fit the demands of the scheme. The athlete, the athlete must be physically capable of performing the tasks required of him. Develop a defensive system which highlights the player's talents. Not only must the talent fit the system, the system must serve the talent. Incorporate elements of defensive football that allow the talent on the team to reach its full potential. I think... As we pause here and reflect on that, we've talked a lot. We've had coaches come on this podcast like uh, Travis Johansson from South Dakota uh, and talk about hybrid players and looking at how do we get our best 11 players on the field. Well, you may be faced with that situation that that best 11 you originally planned on starts to change. So you have to think about how those different pieces might fit together here. And again, having that flexible system is going to allow you to, to uh, remain Sound within the different skill sets that you're putting on the field. He continues on. Utilize simple reads. Avoid explanations to the players that involve superfluous verbiage. Keep in mind that all factors considered in attacking defense cannot be a thinking defense. It should be an instinctive defense. The coaching staff must provide the defenders with simple reads and the maximum quality repetitions at responding to their reads. Repetition in practice is central to developing instincts. I think about Coach Drury at uh, Missouri S&T and he talked to us uh, last off-season about the way which they practice against the scout team to get more reps and to get that reaction to make it instinctive. I'll link that in our show notes. Uh, he also did an, an article with us uh, where he shared uh, the video of what that looks like in practice. I will link that as well. Back to the chapter. Employ a defensive scheme that can maximize the ability of a team to exploit a one-on-one matchup that favors the defense. The scheme should allow the team to take advantage of an opportunistic matchup. Two examples of a defensive team addressing a particular matchup involve using a defense that overmatches the tight end. A defensive scheme that is designed to create a favorable matchup over the tight end can produce quite an advantage. I think we've seen it right now that a lot of teams have gone back to using the tight end at 11 personnel, and he is so dynamic in the offense. Usually, uh, I've seen that right now, a lot off the ball rather than the inline guy, and that guy moving around and doing a lot of things. So if you can make that matchup with that guy to start to control him and what he does, I do think you get an advantage on the offense. Using a defense that gives a team the ability to double cover a receiver. Squat coverages and bracket coverages are examples of the two techniques that can be built into the defensive scheme to take the offense's premier receiver out of the flow of the game. Uh, We did produce a a course on CoachTube with Coach Specht, where he talks about uh, defending their star receiver and the different ways that they do that. It's a system, which he explains, a very simple one, though, that you can take that player out of the game. And again, I will link that in the show notes. Another primary feature of an effective defense is that it's sufficiently flexible. Because sound defensive football is situation driven, a defensive scheme must be able to forcefully address at least five specific situations if it is to be successful. The five situations for which a team should develop a specific defensive strategy are 1. Goal line, inside the five yard line. 2. Short yardage, third and two, fourth and two, etc. Three, long yardage. For example, the offense must get 10 or more yards in a single down. Four, prevent, extremely long situations or time-related situations. And five, third and three, the awkward possession down, the down upon which continued possession is dependent, situation that is sensitive to time, score, location on the field. Despite the well-deserved accolades for the West Coast offense, much of the San Francisco 49ers' success over the years can honestly be attributed to its defense. The efforts of highly talented coaches like George Seifert, Chuck Studley, Bill McPherson, Ray Rhodes, and Pete Carroll to design and direct the defense had a major impact on the gridiron accomplishments of the 49ers. The 49ers' defense was itself a dominating force. The attacking nature of the 49ers' defensive scheme coupled with the sliding 4-3 philosophy on which it was based, epitomized the qualities of aggressiveness, flexibility, and simplicity. As with any successful defensive scheme, the 49ers defense was built upon the skills of the players on a foundation of controlled movement. Developing a great defensive system is quite similar to establishing a great offensive system. It must involve a teaching process that is properly sequenced. The defensive system must be evaluated as to its overall objectives and then partitioned into specific teaching units. The instruction of each of the units should then proceed in a concise manner that results in measurable outcomes. During the sequencing, the system should focus on addressing the contingencies which it will face during the season. So that flexibility and organization that Coach Walsh talked about in the offense definitely carry over to his defensive philosophy. Now, Coach goes on in that chapter into uh, some additional things on defense, not quite as lengthy as what he gave in the offensive part, but uh, just as informative. And then he covers special teams. Effective special teams play is critical to a team's success. Unfortunately, this phase of the game is often given too much rhetoric and not enough work or attention. As the head coach, you should consider several factors when you address special teams play, including... Your kicking team must have key coverage people who have good foot speed and who are strong enough to bounce off blockers. Ideally, your kicking team should include a talented player who is uniquely capable of beating blockers with speed and intensity that enable him to get the kick returner before the return develops. Really successful teams often have three or four such men. Your punt return team must have a sure-handed punt returner who has an explosive start. Your kickoff team must include two physically tough return men who can take a hit and protect the ball. Championship-level teams are built on great return men. An integral part of your special team's play must be well-coached, easily comprehended scheme of punt protection. The scheme should require a minimum number of calls and adjustments. Your punting team must have someone who can consistently punt the ball well, particularly the ability to place the ball inside the 20-yard line. While this skill is frequently discussed a lot, it is seldom practiced to the extent that it becomes an art. Your kickoff team must have a kicker who can get the ball to at least the five yard line. A kickoff of the proper height and distance can be a key tactical weapon for the kicking team. This factor is frequently not given the necessary emphasis by a team. Too many teams appear to use a player in this role who may be an excellent field goal kicker, but who only has poor to average kickoff skills. Your special teams unit must include a field goal kicker who is both accurate and consistent from at least 35 yards. This person must have the full confidence of the team. Your special teams unit must be coached by someone who has executive ability and command presence. This role is often the most challenging position on the staff. All those things he mentioned there, I have so many uh, podcasts with just great special teams coaches. You can think of Robbie Disher who was at Toledo. We've had Uh, Coach Scott Fountain on uh, multiple times, Bobby April, a special teams guru on. Uh, We've had guys talking about every aspect of the kicking game, and we put those together into a playlist. If you are a special teams guy and you're looking for something on your special teams, uh, I can promise we've covered it on this podcast, and I will share that playlist with you in our show notes. Your special teams coach must possess strong organizational skills. In addition, he must be someone who is demanding, intense, and energetic, and must approach the job as though it were a permanent assignment. Coaching the special teams is a coordinator position that requires that the person fulfilling this role have the full breadth of knowledge in all facets of the kicking game. Dick Vermeil, who later in his career as a head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, was named NFL Coach of the Year, is an example of the ideal person for such a role. Dick did a masterful job as the special teams coach for George Allen, who was the head coach of the Los Angeles Rams at the time. His determination to be the best special teams coach in football and subsequent performance in this role started him on a path to becoming one of the truly great head coaches of his time. The current special teams coach for the 49ers, George Stewart, is another example of someone whose skills and approach to his job reflect the ideal profile for this position. It may also someday lead to a head coaching job for him. At times in the past, some teams have not given the special teams coaching position the attention it deserves. Instead, the job has occasionally been awarded to one of the good guys associated with the team, someone who may have lacked the skills to assume a regular staff position. These teams then compound the error of their ways by giving only minimal assistance to their special teams coach. In the 1990s, however, NFL teams who expect to be successful simply don't have the latitude of not making their special teams unit one of their highest priorities and not providing it with all the support it needs, the services of, of the other members of the staff. Coach goes on to cover uh, some faulty and tragic tactics and gives some great examples of that in this chapter. And and lastly, talks about falling prey to initial impressions. And I think when we look at this season, we have that highly competitive competitive adversary, not just across the ball, but in this environment in which we're in right now. Uh, We are required to plan for all contingencies. And I hope that uh, this chapter helped get that across and maybe solidified some thinking for you, gave you some things to think about as you approach uh, the last minute preparations for this season. Uh, Again, check out the show notes uh, that should have the links to all the things I mentioned here. Uh, in the podcast and uh, we look forward to continue bringing you great information here on coach and coordinator follow what we're doing at footballdevelopment.com also check out what we're doing for youth football at fdm.usafootball.com follow me on twitter at coach k grabowski the 49ers have a long way to go a throw on first down. Throws over the middle. Completes it to Craig. It was Joe Montana at his best. Two receivers near side. Joe back to throw. Steps up. Throws out here for Rice. He has it it's midfield. Goes out of bounds. Montana trying to drive him the length of the field here with the game in the balance. Montana back to throw. Throws over the middle. A fight gets for Rice gets it. Rice it, down to the. 50 2nd Joe back to throw. He completes the decline. He's down to the 10. The 49ers will have to take a timeout here as they do. At the 10-yard line, 39 seconds remaining. Back to throw, Montana. Stepped up, throws. Touchdown, 49ers! the touchdown. A 10-yard pass. The 49ers have scored with 34 seconds remaining. 82 yards and 11 plays, and the 49ers have won the Super Bowl.